So if you open your Bibles to James chapter 5, I'm sure you're probably tired of James, we're going to do James tonight, and we'll come back to this next week, next Sunday morning. To James 5, I'm going to actually read here just a minute, verses 13 through 18, page 1013, and if you're using that blue Bible, by the way, if you didn't get one, there's a, an article back there I really want you to get, most of you got it, but it's called Complaining God's Way, Helping People Give Voice to Their Suffering. I highly recommend the article. I made several copies, so do please grab one on the way out back door. Okay? So we're going to read James 5, 13 through 18. So let's, out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me in standing. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. and He prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Take our prayerless hearts, oh dear God, and rouse them tonight. May our impotence become riveted to your omnipotence for Jesus' sake and your honor's sake. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide. I just want you to know that you tonight who are here are the privileged, the specially privileged. And you're saying, well, why would that be? Because I'm going to be working on James 5, 13 through 20, next Sunday morning, and we'll briefly bring in this passage from 1 Kings. But tonight, you get the privilege of actually joining me and delving more fully into one specific part of that passage Primarily, prayer. So I won't spend as much time on prayer next Sunday morning, so you get more tonight. Do you not feel especially privileged? I hope so. Yes, okay. So I'm going to do something I don't often, often do. This is going to be the longest introduction I've ever done for a sermon, ever, in all my live-long days, okay? So this is going to be a long introduction, and then we'll get to the points that are back in your worship guide. What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to let Elijah's story, Elijah's story in 1 Kings 16, 17, and 18 be the guiding, uh, be the, the guiding illustration tonight. So you can actually just go ahead and go to 1 Kings 16, 17, and 18 because that's where I'm going to spend most of my time. I'll make references back to what James says, but you've already heard it and you'll hear it again. So. I want you to notice how 1 Kings chapter 16 ends. It's all about Ahab, King Ahab of Israel, and his rotten. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he did something even worse. He married an outright pagan unbeliever. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, 
the king of the Sidonians, and he went and he served Baal, and he worshipped him, and he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Asherah was Baal's girlfriend, his consort. So usually when you had Baal, you had his girlfriend close by. So that's the Asherah. It's a fertility cult. He didn't recognize that. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And even in his day, Hiel, or Hiel, of Bethel built Jericho. So at, at Ahab's instigation or guidance, Hiel goes and builds, uh, from Bethel goes and builds Jericho. Before we read any further, if you've read Joshua, you know there's a curse on Jericho. And the curse is that whoever rebuilds the city, their firstborn would, it would be built upon the death of the firstborn and be finished on the death of the, of the youngest son. And that's exactly what happens. But notice that Ahab is being targeted here or zeroed in on in his extra special sinfulness. In other words, Ahab didn't care what was in Scripture. He didn't care what was said before. He's going to do what he wants to do because he's a rugged individualist and he's the king and he's just going to do it. And that's how this story ends at the end of chapter 16. So it goes on to say, And Hiel of Bethel built Jericho, he laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gate at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. That's how chapter 16 ends. And then suddenly, out of the blue, comes chapter 17 and Elijah. Before chapter 17, 1, You've never heard anything about Elijah. You don't know where Elijah's from. You don't know his family heritage. You don't know anything about Elijah. All of a sudden, boop, here he is. Just like that. This suddenness catches your attention. So notice what happens. Out of the blue, suddenly comes Elijah. And Elijah speaks to Ahab in chapter 17, verse 1. As Yahweh, or as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now notice what Elijah is stressing here, that God will direct the course of human affairs, but notice he says how God chooses to direct the course of human affairs. By my word. By the word. That's what he says at the end of verse 1. Nothing will happen except by my word. God chooses to direct the course of human affairs by a human's involvement, Elijah's involvement. It's only James, James chapter 5, who hundreds of years after this episode and after it was written about, tells us how this whole situation of drought and dirt came about. Nobody else tells us this. You can't figure it out from 1 Kings 17. You can't find it anywhere else. It's only James who tells us. And what does he tell us? The prayer of a righteous person has great powers in his working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three and a half years, three years and six months, it did not rain. Nothing, nowhere else in Scripture does it tell us that Elijah prayed, and this is what came about. It's James that tells us this. So notice the point here, that God sovereignly worked he ruled, he worked, but he worked through a man, and he worked through a man's prayers. He worked, and he worked through a man, and he worked through a man's prayers. This all becomes the clearest three and a half years later, in the words of James in James 5, 
Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, look at chapter 18, verse 18. Look at verse 1. Look down there to verse 1. And notice God's sovereign direction. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send, I will send rain upon the earth. What do you see here? You see God is directing. God directed and God will dispose. But notice how he is choosing to dispose what to direct. Elijah, you go and say this, and I will send rain. So Elijah does exactly what Yahweh says, and he calls upon Ahab and all of his phony prophets, goes to the top of Mount Carmel, he unmasks all of his prophets, hundreds of them, as shysters and scammers. It's a funny scene. It's meant to be funny. You're supposed to walk away from 1 Kings 18 laughing your head off because Baal is nothing. Right? What is he? Maybe he's in the restroom somewhere. Scream a little louder. Cut yourselves more. Maybe you need to go ahead and text him a few more times because he's not listening. I mean, it's meant to make you walk away guffawing. It's so silly. And so Elijah exposes Ahab's whole religious system and his prophets as shysters and scammers. But it's the end of the scene that gets to our point. You remember, as you get to the end of 1 Kings 18, verse 41 through 45, you know the story. After he's already exposed the prophets, he then goes up, uh, he tells Ahab to eat, and then he goes up and he gets down and he puts his head between his knees and he's praying and he has his servant Gehazi. And he says, Gehazi, after he prays a little bit, he says, go look at the horizon, tell me what you see. Well, I don't see it. And he prays again. Now, Gehazi, go see what's on the horizon. He goes seven times. It's not till the seventh time Gehazi comes back and he says, uh, Master, what I see is I see a cloud like a man's hand, the size of a man's hand. And that's when Elijah says, go down there and tell Ahab to get home because it's going to rain a, a, a toad strangler. Right? He didn't say toad strangler. That's mine. Okay? But it's, it's interesting. Think about it. God said in verse 1, I will send rain. But what is Elijah doing? Praying, right? God is not going to bring it to pass except by the prayer of Elijah. God directs, God disposes, but the way He chooses to dispose is how? By a man's prayer. The God, the God who directs and determines all things brings about His decision through a man's prayer. This whole episode and that statement I just said to you, it, it doesn't answer all of our questions. We've got a bazillion questions, I know. We all do, right? But they help to put us on the right street and heading down the right road. So in the words of the Reformation Study Bible, you have this quote at the top of your sermon notes, in the words of the Reformation Study Bible as it introduces the Old Testament book of Ezra, I read this to you back when we did Nehemiah, but let me do it again. Quote, God works sovereignly through responsible human agents to accomplish His redemptive and that statement is being is drawing from these principles you keep seeing thrown up from the Old Testament and the New. And so it's true. God works sovereignly. Is He sovereign? Yes. Can anything stand in His way? No. But God works sovereignly through responsible human agents to accomplish His redemptive purpose. 
And part of our responsibility as human agents by which God will accomplish His redemptive purpose is prayer. And Elijah, you can't miss it, Elijah shows us that this is justice. This is true regarding prayer. So there you go. That was the longest introduction I will ever, 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 ever do. So now we get down to the points. There's three things we need to say then. We want to say that God rules, first off, beyond our prayer. We've got to say that. God rules beyond our prayer. By that statement, what I simply mean is that God is not bound to our prayer. As if He's somehow impotent until we come in and we turn on the prayer light switch. Right? He's not impotent. I mean, just go back to Genesis 1 and 2. What does God do on day one? Let there be light. Was there a human anywhere praying? No. Day two, day three, day four, day five. How about day six when he makes humans? Was there a human anywhere around praying for God to create humans? No. Does he do it sovereignly? Yes. God rules beyond our prayers. We cannot ever lose sight of that. It's extremely comforting. Secondly, along with this, God rules beyond our prayers in doing things we have never even conceived of, such as defeating death and the devil by the death and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. We never would have conceived that. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God rules beyond our prayers. We've got to hammer this home into our hearts. The reason why this is comforting is because if you forget to pray for somebody, right, you don't have to walk around feeling horrible, guilty. God can't do anything unless we pray. No, God rules beyond our prayers. That's comforting, right? So it is, it is for me. So God rules beyond our prayers, and we've got to hammer that home into our hearts. But also, the story of Elijah makes clear, and James encourages us with this, that God rules by our prayers. Here's the second point. God rules by our prayers. That's exactly what you see going on in 1 Kings. God ruling by the prayers of His servant. My friends, that should also be an encouragement to us. And James is wanting to encourage us. And he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great powers and is working. God rules by our prayers. I mean, that's the message behind so much of Scripture on prayer. For example, when Paul says, what Paul says about prayer, I'm just going to give you one example, but over in Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, watching, uh, watching in it with thanksgiving. Well, why would we continue in prayer if, if, um, if God doesn't work by our prayers? In fact, notice how Paul goes on. As he's talking about prayer, he says, at the same time, pray also for us. Well, why would we pray to God if He's impotent or He doesn't, He can't, you know, he's, why would we pray? At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us the door of, for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to work. The whole presupposition of Paul's statement is that God rules by our prayers. That's why he asks for his people to pray. Does that make sense? Okay, I don't need to hammer that horse anymore, okay? So our Lord Jesus also encourages us toward this same recognition by his own example and his stories that he tells. 
a couple of weeks back, we looked at Luke chapter 11 and the, the, the neighbor who goes over and pesters the other neighbor, knocks on his door, and by his impudence, he'll be answered. The whole thing was to tell us that God rules by our prayers. But over in Luke 18, which we'll spend, we'll spend time actually looking at Luke 18 in a few weeks, but Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Always pray and don't lose heart. Well, how, how can you not lose heart? Because God rules by our prayers. The significant part of the reassurance that lies behind several of the episodes and the prayers in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, for example, of the book of Psalms, Go back and take some time to work through Psalm 138 that we did responsibly. It's the, it's the, it's the uh, significant part of the reassurance that lies behind all of that. But there are at least three things that we need to keep close to our heart as we say this. God rules by our prayers. Three things we need to throw in here, and you have those as subjects. God rules by our humble prayers. God rules by our humble prayers. I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago that our Lord Jesus shows us what this means. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And I told you the story of my friend who was a recovering alcoholic. He realized that his whole life, when he hit rock bottom, he realized his whole life he'd been shouting at God and said, not your will, but mine be done. And when he hit rock bottom, the change came when he finally said, no, that's the wrong thing to ask. Not my will, but yours be done. Humble praise. God rules by our humble praise. And so we pray knowing that like a trusting, like trusting children, we are, as the catechism puts it, we are coming to a Father who is able and ready to help us, but He is a Father. Now if you had kids, or if you were ever once a kid, anybody here? You know when you were a kid, you asked things that you still embarrassed stuffings out of you, right? You ask things. You can remember some of that, and thank God that your parents didn't answer quite the way you wanted, but they answered your request the way you needed. You get it? Think humble people come with humble prayer, and God uses and rules by our humble prayers. We come knowing we don't have it all together. In fact, we come knowing we are children, and just like our children, our prayers are often very, very selfish, and almost always very, very self-serving, and all the time very, very short-sighted, just like when our kids came to us asking us things. And so we know we're coming to a father who's not going to say, I don't even want to hear from you so you get your act together, right? We know that when we come to him, we may not have it all right, but he does. And so he takes that prayer, and in his sovereignty, he rules by that humble prayer. We come not demanding of God, I named it. I'm acclaiming it. We come with a humble prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. But this is what it looks like to me. Answer my prayer, Lord. He rules by our humble prayer. And so the humility is trusting that He is a good Father. And in the end, He will do what is good. Let me say that again. I see two head shakes. Okay. So... The humility is trusting that he is a good father and in the end he will do what is good. He will use our prayer, no matter how messed up it is, to do so. 
As many of our Anglican friends, our conservative Anglican friends, will be praying this week words like this. I love this language. Graciously hear the devout prayers of your church and grant that those things we ask faithfully we may obtain effectually. Pretty humility in that request. We're pretty messed up people. We don't always ask faithfully. What we're going to ask is that what you hear from us that's right, that's faithful, answer it effectively with potency. I love that language. I think it's just right. Well, as Leonard Ravenhill put it in his book, Revival Praying, it's one of those quotations I feel very confident, comfortable giving to you in that book. He put it this way, and you don't have this quotation in your sermon, I didn't have enough space. Quote, Prayer is another way of telling God that we have all confidence in Him, but no confidence in our own native power. Prayer is another way of telling God that we have all confidence in Him, but no confidence in our own native powers. God rules by our prayers, and He rules by our humble prayers. Secondly, He rules, God rules by our kingdom-directed prayers. You know, Jesus talked about and gave us a guaranteed promise that if we pray in His name, but we often take those verses in John, they're in John, and take those out of context to mean that Jesus will, that God will answer our prayers because we put this little magic formula at the end of our prayers. In Jesus' name. And so He'll answer all these prayers, like that one for the $500,000 Bentley you've been praying for. I know how been praying for a $500,000. Right? And we take it out of context and misuse it. Jesus didn't say didn't guarantee um, the, the answer to all of our prayers if we pray in Jesus' name. He actually has a specific focus. It's kingdom-directed prayer. So in John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he believes in me, the works that I do. Do you hear it? The works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. That's the context of what he's about to say in prayer. It's kingdom-directed. Christ will rescue operation. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Right? The whole point of that is kingdom-directed praise. Jesus says it later on, and you had it as our call to worship in John 15. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you by this. My Father is glorified that you bear what? Much fruit. Has nothing to do with the five hundred thousand dollar Bentley or the forty million dollar house or whatever. It has to do with bearing fruit as Jesus' disciples in God and God's world rescue operation. That's the point. There's the guarantee, the emphatic guarantee, kingdom directed prayer. Okay, just putting those back in their context is extremely important. So God rules by our kingdom directed prayer. He's guaranteeing that as we come in humility. And as we come under His authority, this is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not about adding it to the end of our prayers. There's nothing wrong with us doing that, by the way. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about as we come to Him in humble prayer, come to Him under His authority, coming to Him in submission to Him in prayer. Does that make sense? That's a big difference from sometimes when we pray. Sometimes we pray, we're not in submission to Him. I mean, well, okay, maybe it's just me and Wes. We're the only two, I think, in the whole church. And sometimes you pray and are not in submission to Him. We don't want what He wants sometimes. Sometimes we just want what we want. You get what I'm saying? 
So coming and praying in the name of Jesus means we're coming under His authority. We're asking in submission to Him. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. But what happens is that God rules by our prayers. God rules by our kingdom directly. Here's how the Westminster Larger Catechism puts it. By the way, if you ever want to be humiliated, read the Larger Catechism. It's just, it's great. It's great to make you feel about this tall, right? You thought the Valley of Vision prayers and the Confession of Sin this morning and Alan doing it and, and uh, uh, Peter doing it, you know, are humbling. Well, just go read the Larger Catechism. But here's how the Larger Catechism puts it in reference to the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, Thy Kingdom Come, Thy uh, Thy will be done at, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, thy, thy, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Catechism says that we're acknowledging that by nature, we and all men are not only utterly unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God, but prone to rebel against His word, to repine and murmur against His providence, and wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and of the devil. We come asking, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. We're acknowledging that we're rebels to His kingdom. And then it goes on. We pray that God would, by His Spirit, take away from ourselves and others. Notice this: take away from ourselves and others all blindness. Reformed Christians, you need to listen to that. Take away from ourselves and all others blindness. We're blind. Right, we got. Does anybody have blind spots? Okay, yeah. There's three of us that have blind spots. Awesome, right? We all have blind spots. There are just there's a there's kind of. It's not that the force. It's not that God has a dark side. We have a dark side. We have large shadows in our lives, right? We have a blindness, and so we acknowledge that uh, we ask God to remove all uh, of ours and all others' blindness, weakness. In disposedness and perverseness of heart. We're Presbyterians. We don't just believe in total depravity. We practice it. Right? I mean, so we're acknowledging that and we're praying, God, help us to not do that. It's kingdom-directed prayer. And by His grace, make us able and willing to know and do and submit to His will in all things. With the like humility, cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity, and constancy of the angels. I love the way it's put because that's kind of that kingdom, it's very much that kingdom-directed prayer. Here's a side note. If you find your praying is running flat like a rubber tire that's out of air and where the rim is starting to cut the rubber, you know what I mean by flat? I mean, that's flat. There's no recovering that time. You feel like your prayer is like that flat? I have a recommendation. You grab the Heidelberg Catechism or the Shorter Catechism or the Westminster Larger Catechism, go to the part about the Lord's Prayer and how it explains it, and then take one petition a day. On Sunday, take the first part. Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then use that catechism to guide you in what to pray that day. Then on the next day, thy kingdom come. Spend some time in that catechism and what it talks about, and let that guide you in your prayer. And then you just keep going on until you get to Saturday. Thine is the kingdom and the power of the glory forever. And let that, what it says there in that catechism, be what guides you in that prayer. Do that for a few weeks, then grab the next catechism. You start with the Heidelberg, then go to the shorter catechism. And then for the big finale, the grand finale, 
do the larger catechism for a couple of weeks. I think you'll find that impacts the way you pray and what you're actually thinking about praying. Most times it's all about me and my hang, my, my toenail and my bunion on my foot, right? It changes the way you pray. You find yourself actually engaged in kingdom-directed prayer. That was a little extra. There you go. And so God rules by our prayers. He rules by our humble prayers. He rules by our kingdom-directed prayer. But also God rules by our God-confident our God-confident prayers. It's God-confident prayers. It's not program-confident. It's not country-confident. It's not self-confident. It's not even prayer-confident. God-confident prayers. Do you understand the difference there? Sometimes we walk in and we pray because we're confident of prayer. It's not the prayer. It's the God whom we're communicating. Just like faith, it's not the quality of your faith, it's the quality of the one who brings Same with faith. It's God confident. Doug Kelly puts it this way in his book, and I recommended this book last time. I still recommend it. I always recommend it. God really already knows why I pray. He says this, and I think this is the other quotation in your sermon. Sovereign God on his throne, who has planned all things from the beginning to the end, has arranged his plan in such a way that the prayers of the saints are one of the major means he uses to accomplish his final goal. Instead of the sovereignty of God clashing with the prayers of the believer, the two actually presuppose one another and fulfill and undergird one another. That inspires you to pray. Sovereignty of God and human prayers do not clash. They presuppose one another and fulfill and undergird. And so God rules by our prayers. He rules by our humble prayers. He rules by our kingdom directed prayers. He rules by our God confident prayers. Here's the last point God rules behind our prayers. God rules behind our prayers. I mean, think about Elijah. With Elijah, God specifically told him what he was going to do, and that spurred the prophet to go take specific action, and one of those specific actions was what? The end of 1 Kings 18? To pray. Thank you. This is about prayer, so that would be a good answer to start with, right? It, what God said, so God was ruling behind Elijah's prayer, and it spurred Elijah to pray. Humanly speaking, God uses our needs to spur us as well. He uses our needs to spur us to prayer. Uh, but He also uses our desperation. When we're desperate, part of that is God ruling behind our prayers to bring us to finally accept the fact we need to pray and to get on our faces and pray. Sometimes the reason why we're going through things and they get hard even harder than normal is because we're obstinate little kids and we just refuse to pray. So God rules behind our prayers. When J.I. Packer was writing about evangelism, that was his heartfelt sentiment. And if you read the pastoral letter this week, you got this quotation, if you saw what I, I put it also on my Facebook feed this week, 
And then, by the way, there's copies of the pastoral letter back there on the credenza, right next, pretty close to where that article is I want you to take with you. But here's that quotation from J.I. Packer. This is the universal rule. In evangelism as elsewhere. So not just about evangelism. This is about other things. In evangelism as, well, as elsewhere, God will make us pray. God will make us pray before He blesses our labors in order that we may constantly learn afresh that we depend on God for everything. And then when God permits us to see conversions, he's thinking primarily of evangelism here, when God permits us to see conversions, we shall not be tempted to ascribe them to our own gifts or skill or wisdom or persuasiveness, but to his work alone. And so we shall know whom we ought to thank. God will make us pray. He rules behind our prayers. And you can take that, as I said, into other areas of importance as well. I think that all the way through the Psalms and even Job and many of the true tales in the Hebrew Scriptures, that's exactly what God does. He rules behind their prayers. He drives them to pray. So that there's no doubt where the answer comes from. So, my friends, just going a little bit further, circumstantial conditions, this is probably the most non-Presbyterian part of my sermon. Okay, here we go. So, circumstantial conditions should shove us, shove our prayerless hearts into praying. Circumstantial conditions, things happen, and it drives us to pray. But also, God sometimes does throw into our laps incomprehensible sensations and senses and impulses to pray for someone. Who has woken up? Some of you have. I heard you tell me this. Who's woken up at 2 in the morning with somebody on the brain that you haven't seen in 30 years? And if you're like me, your first inclination is, I want to go back to sleep. And so you do everything you can to go back to sleep, and that's the end of it, right? And if you finally get to sleep, you go to sleep. But some of you have done the right thing. You just go, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but they're on my brain, so I'm going to pray for them. You're just going to pray for them. Who knows? God knows. Who knows if this is going to actually just mean something for them? God knows. God uses those incomprehensible sensations and senses and impulses to bring us to pray for people. We should do that. God rules behind our prayers. So let that stimulate us to pray, to convinced that God rules even behind us. So, as I wrap this up, let me quote again J.I. Packer. He puts this on the very last page of his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He puts it this way. Quote, Thus, the wheel, the wheel of our argument comes full circle. We began, at the beginning of the book, we began by appealing to our practice of prayer as proof of our faith in divine sovereignty. We end, this is now the end of the book, we end by applying our faith in divine sovereignty as a motive for the practice of prayer. A belief in the divine sovereignty is a motive for the practice of prayer. So, brothers and sisters, stay the course. Let these reflections aid you in running to your Father in prayer, running to Him as children, coming to a Father who is ready and able to help us, let us approach prayer knowing that God rules beyond our prayers. Hallelujah! And knowing that God rules 
by our prayers, by our humble prayers, our kingdom-directed prayers, our God-confident prayers, but God rules by our prayers, and confident and approaching with this confidence that God rules behind our prayers. As William Cooper put it, I told you this is on the flyer for this whole series, and I told you he quote this every night. As William Cooper wrote it, wrote in the 18th century, Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And one reason why he trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees is because here are people coming to a God who rules by our prayers, beyond and by and even behind us. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Thank you so much, Lord, that you you are the one who broke open the door. You, you, you cock it open. You say, come, come. Lord, we drag our feet. And we doubt. And we come up with all kinds of arguments and excuses not to pray, not to draw near to you. Forgive us for all of those things. Help us to run to you. Thank you, Lord, that you do rule beyond our prayers, that you're not bound to them. Thank you, Lord, that you choose to yield it, draw us into your sovereign rule of where you have decreed and you're going to dispose, and yet you choose to do so through the prayers of people like us. We will buy our prayers. Lord, thank you that you will be behind us and help us be more sensitive to that. When those moments come and somebody pops into our head, our situation pops into our head, instead of resisting, we come to you pray on their behalf. Thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us with this opportunity, this, this privilege. So may we take advantage of it with great joy. In Jesus' name we pray.